Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Edis JB3. And if you hear this faint sound of breathing, that's not me. I am currently wearing a, I, don't, I guess he's not a newborn anymore. He's what, almost two months? And so he's attached to me. And daddy needs to get the podcast intro recorded. And here we are. So glad to have you back. Um, let's dive right into it. So we're talking on today's episode about student affairs. And we're talking about various programming that is created to ensure that students feel you know, safe on campus, but also feel like they belong. And I reflect on my experience when I first made it to Michigan State University. There was this program called MRULE. And if I remember correctly, it stands for Multiracial Unity Living Experience. And this might have been one of the first times that I participated in traditional like DEI programming. And I feel like this is one of the first places where I got to see dialogue being used as a tool to facilitate conversation. Now, you all know I'm a facilitator. This is what I do. And I use dialogue often as a mechanism for encouraging thought for people to start thinking about their behaviors. And this Emerald program might have been one of the first places where I got to participate in it. And again, this was one of those times where I didn't have a name for the thing that I was participating in. And, and as a fresh 18 year old, I didn't know much about diversity, equity or inclusion. But this was able to expose me to different perspectives, people from different backgrounds, different countries, in the ways that they perceive various interactions. And I'm pretty sure uh, Emerald is still on and popping. So shout out to uh, brother Drew Baker, who I know is over part of that program now, who was actually one of the uh, people who was uh, facilitating a lot of those conversations when I participated way back when. I know he's more on the administrative side now. And I also believe I just saw Joshua Smith, um, who I've known since like elementary school, uh, recently joined in the program as well. So I'm sure as it continues to evolve, it will do so in the right direction. On today's episode, we're going to talk to uh, Dr. Jasmine Lee, a student affairs professional working with the University of Maryland, Baltimore County who knows all about using dialogue as a tool, but also goes the extra step when it comes to empowering students to ensure that they feel like they have a place on campus, to feel like they belong in a place where they can help to nurture their identity. Because as we all know, you go off to these universities and these institutions, you don't have a good sense of self just yet. And it's constantly forming and reforming and there's opportunities to really get involved, um, whether through community service opportunities, through fraternal organizations, whatever it may be. There's just an opportunity to develop yourself and your identity. And student affairs as a profession plays a key role in doing that. And so I'm excited to introduce you all to Dr. Lee. Dr. Lee, let the folks know a little bit about yourself, where you're from, etc. Hi, listeners. Uh, my name is Jasmine, um, Jasmine Lee, and uh, I go by she and her pronouns. I am a Lansing, Michigan native, currently living in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so I've been working in the Division of Student Affairs in um, one capacity or another pretty much since 2009. Um, and I'm excited to kind of explore what that means and how that connects to equity and inclusion in our conversation today. So Dr. Lee, what led you to this work specifically? Um, so, so that's an interesting question, I think, primarily because I don't actually know. It's something that I kind of fell into. And I think that a lot of conversations that I've had with folks who work in student affairs um, or work in higher education administration in some capacity outside of like the professorship or faculty, they, they also have a similar experience of like, I didn't even know this was a real job. Um, and, and I just kind of happened upon it. And so for me, I think what brought me to this work is a culmination of multiple experiences so I actually started my undergraduate experience at a community college. I started at Lansing Community College, um, shout out to, Lan to LCC. And so I was there for a year and then I transferred 15 hours away down to Jackson State University, which is a historically black college a university for those of you who are not aware. I was there for two years and um, you know, experienced a lot while I was there in particular, some interesting culture shock that was a little bit surprising to me as, as connected to um, you know, growing up and uh, going to East Lansing High School, a predominantly white high school, and then going to a, a, um, about 99% black school, right? Like it was very different in a whole different region, very different, very different experience. So I was there for two years, my stepdad got sick. And so then I decided that I would transfer back to Eastern and while I was at Eastern, Eastern Michigan University, while I was there, I happened upon social work. While I was pursuing my social work de degree, I was also working on campus in what was then called the Center for Multicultural Affairs. And so in this space, um, I, I was doing university-wide diversity programming while taking classes that were giving me the context around diversity, equity, and inclusion, giving me the context around ecological models and um, um, how multiple systems are connected to one another and how all of those things, especially the things that are happening outside of the classroom impact students within the classroom. And so I was convinced that I was gonna be a school social worker actually. Mm. And in the process of that though, I was actually really falling in love with my work as a work study student, um, I, I, me and my friends, we were at the Center for Multicultural Affairs every single day. Like that was our, our, our home, that was our job, that was our friend space, like everything. And I just really fell in love with that work. And so I think it was in that space that I was cultivating this deep love, not just for diversity and inclusion, but for student affairs work. And I think in, in particular for the kind of co-curricular opportunities that happen in, in, in student affairs, but I just didn't know it. I didn't have the language to say, I wanna be a student affairs practitioner or anything like that. And um, so then I started working at, at the same institution in this, this um, retention program called the Summer Incentive Program, which get, provided conditional admission to students who came from under-resourced high schools or under-resourced communities, typically between areas like Flint, Saginaw, and Detroit. Uh, so a couple of feeder schools in Grand Rapids, but less less often. And uh, so that was my my first <laughs> career job, right? Right out of grad, right out of undergrad, they hired me as a supervisor because I was working as an RA um, um, during the summers when the Center for Multicultural Affairs was closed. And so again, I, I was doing this work. I got hired into this, you know, my very first career job. But I was still pursuing um, uh, at this point a master's in social work, and I was pursuing a social work career because I didn't actually know that a career in higher education could be a thing, even though that's literally what I was doing. 
And then uh, honestly, about halfway through my MSW program, I, I had a couple of internship placements that did not go well. They were more traditional social work and, 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 and framing and in process, I guess. And, and so I asked to get a, a transfer to a different internship. And I was paired with this program called the intergroup relation, the program for intergroup relations at the University of Michigan. And um, this was a part of my MSW program um, that I was getting trained in intercultural dialogue, intergroup dialogue in the program, and then was serving as an intergroup faci dialogue facilitator and trainer, curriculum developer for my internship. And so I think it was those two culminating experiences that finally, I think, opened up for me like, oh, so this is actually the work that I want to do. And the pairing the social work um, academic experiences with the practical kind of lived daily work experiences of doing diversity programming, working in the division of student affairs. I think it was called student life at that particular institution at the time. Um, but both of those things happening over time and then finally kind of smacking into each other toward the end is what really, I think, solidified for me that student affairs is where I wanted to go. You know, I didn't know that you did the work around dialogue. Um, mm -hmm. And that's that's really exciting to me because that's that's like my jam in understanding that there's a difference between debate and dialogue and dialogue mm -hmm. is very intentional, right? Like mm -hmm. you're examining your position in the room, you're understanding like we're not necessarily seeking to argue census mm -hmm. in some way, like we're looking for a common good like that. I'm all about that. And it's also interesting, like I I don't refer to myself as a social worker as often. Like people will say, oh, you're a social worker. I'm, I'm trained social worker, but I don't, I don't practice. Therefore, it's kind of a disconnect for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, and, and I think that's, so two things I want to say in response to what you just shared. The, the first thing I want to say as connected to the last piece, I think that's interesting because I, I do think that there was at one point earlier in my career where I would, I, there was also a disconnect for me. And I would, I would go through this long explanation for people where I would say almost exactly what you said, like, well, I'm a, I'm a trained, you know, clinician, I, I'm a trained social worker, but that's not really the work I do, you know? Um, and, and I think over time I come to realize that it's literally the work I do. It just so happens that my, um, my environment, my space, my population, right? It's a university, it's university students and it's the university context. But how I engage in that space, how I engage with students and how I think about making sure that their needs are met is, is still very much rooted in my training and my nature as a social worker. The second thing that I wanted to say in response to what the first part of what you said around dialogue uh, is absolutely that. It's not about arguing, it's really about creating more space in the middle for multiple truths, right? It's not about, um, and, and I think uh, we don't need to necessarily go into a full um, tangential conversation about dialogue in and of itself, uh, because I could also do, <laughs> I could also do that, but we don't necessarily need to, to do that. But I think um, what people who are really committed to equity in particular, I think sometimes struggle with dialogue because I think it can be perceived as both sidism. And that's not the case, at least how I understand it. And for me, I think about Krista Tippett, who, who is an author and she wrote this book. Um, what is the book called? Where can I find it? It was 
it's near me somewhere um, because I refer to it often. Uh, the book is called Becoming Wise and Inquiry into the Mystery and the Art of Living by Krista Tippett. And there's this chapter in the book that's called Words. And, and she essentially says um, for her, and, and this has really become, I think, um, a personal mantra. She says, the crack in the middle where people on both sides absolutely refuse to see the other as evil. This is where I want to live and what I want to widen. And that's how I see the purpose and the attention of dialogue. And in particular, intergroup dialogue, which is really designed for people to connect across difference intentionally to unpack biases, to unpack um, uh, generalizations, to unpack uh, sh shamed experiences, to unpack harmful behaviors, right? All of these things, but doing so in a way that doesn't assume that even when you say something harmful, that you are inherently evil, right? It's really rooted in honoring the dignity and the humanity of all people even the worst of us. And, and I think um, oftentimes when we are really committed to equity work, we can sometimes get into this space where it's us and them. And dialogue for me actually says that we pursue equity, we pursue equity and equitable outcomes because it actually serves all of us, not because it serves us versus them, right? Or not because I'm taking something from them for us, it's actually because this serves all of us actually. Um, and so, so yeah, so yeah, I love dialogue. It's, it, it is, yes, it is my heart's work, honestly, <laughs> honestly. Oh, we could have a completely different conversation, but we will stick <laughs> to the outline. That is, that is fine. So as you've matriculated through your studies, through various professional opportunities, could you just for us really quickly define what exactly is student affairs? This is so funny because in preparation for this conversation today, I was really thinking hard about this question because I was like, dang, what is student affairs? <laughs> like, I don't remember. Um, so obviously I have a bachelor's and a master's in social work. So I didn't do like a traditional master's in student affairs program like a lot of student affairs practitioners do. What brought me to student affairs is my work experience, right? The work that I was doing. And then my PhD is more broadly in higher education administration, but my research focus is students, Black students in particular. So I, I don't ever remember getting a definition of what student affairs is, honest to God. And so when I was reading this, I was like, dang, I don't even, I don't know. How do I even answer this question? And so, um, I think how I want to answer it is to say that people tend to think of student affairs as the touchy-feely part, right, of the university experience. Um, whereas they're thinking of the classroom and the academic spaces as the more rigorous spaces where the learning actually happens, et cetera. And, and so I think of student affairs in actuality as encompassing much of the learning that happens outside of the classroom and supports the meaning making that happens even within the classroom. So this is from service work and civic engagement to leadership and sorority and fraternity life to living and learning communities, right? Career services and internships, all the things, student, student government association and insert list, right? The list goes on and on and on and on and on. Um, and obviously includes multicultural student programming or social justice oriented work or education and advocacy, residential life, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so it's literally, most, I won't say all, but because divisions of student affairs are organized differently. So like, for example, at some universities, athletics and auxiliary services are within student affairs and at some universities they are not, right, for example. Um, but uh, it encompasses much of the learning that happens outside of the classroom. And like I said, it's the space that also 
supports the meaning making, I think, and the lived experiences that are happening within the classroom. The other piece that I think about too is that um, classroom spaces tend to be really focused on the content, right? Uh, teaching the content, making students, making sure students learn the content, that they can retain the content, that they can apply the content specific to fisheries and wildlife or specific to political science, or, you know, whatever. And so you're learning the histories and the, theor the theories that are connected to all of those ways of thinking and the things that matter in those particular fields. Student affairs, on the other hand, is not about specific content. It's literally about student development. It's literally about the journeys that students take uh, during their university experience and to the point where we're not even just thinking about traditional students, air quotes, like 18 to 24, um, non-parents, right, living on campus. We actually are thinking about adult learners. We're thinking about caregivers. We're thinking about all of these things and how their development and their journey through the institution is going to be slightly different. Their needs are going to be slightly different and how we help them create um, a well-rounded experience as a part of the programming and the opportunities for engagement that they have um, is, 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 is really rooted in our expertise, as in that is to say that uh, student affairs practitioners are experts in students, right? Whereas faculty members are experts in a particular content area. For student affairs, students are our content. So everything that I read, everything that I study, everything that I write about is about students and all of the variety of experiences they have. And so that's really what student affairs, affairs is, I guess. That's how I would describe it. It's really the space that happens um, outside of the classroom that completes the university or co collegiate experience. So I'm, not, I'm gonna deviate from the outline really quickly. And this is actually gonna appear later in the episode. But okay. I'm curious as to, how do you balance the role? Because I know you've taught classes in addition to having uh, that perspective of like student-centered needs. Mm -hmm. So how do you balance that of like the student is the content or, you know, in this case, like I want to make sure that you're getting that applied experience plus the content that whatever this course may be. Mm, yeah, good question. So what's great is that I get to decide what I want to teach. And that's one of the reasons why I tend to be really committed to teaching first year students, um, because there's just much more flexibility in, in there. And, and then also, you know, um, uh, first year students just are a different kind of canvas. <laughs> than returning students. But so the, the class that I teach now and, and is, a, is a course that I've taught maybe three or so years at this point, it's called Race, Social Justice, Race and Social Justice Dialogues. And it's really cultivating an environment for students to engage in dialogue about various aspects of race, racism, and all of the things that are connected to that, racialized experiences and all of those things. And so actually the, the way that I set up the classroom is like um, a dialogue circle. We use circle, circle um, pedagogy. We are really thinking about um, how students build relationships with one another, right? So even over the past year in, in COVID, where we've been virtual and all that kind of stuff, we still started every single session with a pair share check-in, even though it was virtual. Every single session, we're asking how students are doing. We're making sure that they have the resources that they need. We're making sure that if they, if they are feeling overwhelmed, that they're connected to the counseling center or what have you, which I think um, sometimes faculty members, not all, but sometimes faculty members, because they're so committed to the content, 
and because of the pressure to publish and tenure track and all that kind of stuff, they don't always have the time to think of students as students. A lot of times it's, it's, it's students are thought of as the receptacles of, or the beneficiaries of the knowledge that I have as a faculty member, right? Or my research, my experience, my background, my, you know, my passions or what have you. Whereas in my classrooms, it's really, it, the, the goal is actually that students leave the space with the skills and the disposition um, necessary to facilitate dialogue amongst their own peers at their own family dinner tables, et cetera, especially around difficult topics like race. So we're helping them to get the language and the content, but at the end of the day, I almost don't even care if they remember how to define racism. What I do care about is if they remember and commit to being in the practice of questioning systems, of being in the practice of deeply listening and asking generous questions, being in the practice of, right, all of these things. And so I think that's also how you balance both of those roles, right? So even in the classroom, then it's really about them practicing and reflecting uh, so that they can cultivate the dispositions that lead to, right, a more inclusive or multicultural society or equitable society or, or, or whatever language we want to use as opposed to they need to come into this class and the only thing they need to learn about is like why racism is bad, right? Like that, that actually is not enough because people can learn about the language, they can learn about the history, but that doesn't mean that they know what to do with it. That, that doesn't mean that they know how to call in their Uncle Joe, because everybody got an Uncle Joe, right? Not Who's not saying something really questionable. Um, so, so yeah, so I don't know if that actually answers your question, but th that is the answer that I have for you. <laughs> it does, it does. And I'm slightly jealous because there wasn't like a race and social justice and identity course for me, but I'm excited because future leaders will, will have this built in, right? Like they should be prepared to have those difficult conversations or to navigate through spaces that are not clear. Exactly, exactly. So exactly what role does student affairs play in shaping diverse and multicultural communities? And part of this comes from me being an RA many moons mm -hmm. ago. And I was a terrible RA. <laughs> I was like one of three black RAs in West Circle. And so it was just very different because the my students didn't look like me. My mm -hmm. students didn't have my perspective on life. My students didn't have like <laughs> the insight that I had into certain experiences. And so I often wondered like, where where is my my community within the institution to assist me in doing this. And so I'm curious as to how you've seen student affairs play a role in doing that. Sure, yeah, so some of it I kind of said um, in response to a question that you asked earlier, but I think student affairs role is really connected to the meaning making and the applied experiences. So being able to actually put some application behind all of the things that you just named, right? So I, I'm, I'm working in this part of campus where most of the people who don't look like me, most of them don't have my same experience or, and, and not even about you, right? Like let's flip it and think about the white students living in West Circle, <laughs> right? Uh, most of them don't are, are looking at you like, he don't know where I'm coming from. He doesn't have my experience. They're probably making judgments about you, right? Like all of these things, um, even, even, my assumption that they're making judgments is a judgment on them. Um, but that's what typically happens, right, with college students, especially if they're coming in their first or they're in their, in their second year or what have you. 
And so really what student affairs, um, quality student affairs practitioners, I say, and people who are really committed to and understand the various aspects of student development or even racial identity development or queer identity development, right? Like all of these other social identities that are connected um, to how we experience the world, especially from an intersectional or intersecting space. And so in the student affairs spaces, then you have the opportunity to help students make meaning of, okay, so this person perhaps doesn't have any of the same experiences as you. They're coming from a different background as you. What does that mean, right? Are there shared values? Are there, are there shared experiences or, or not? And if not, is that also still okay, right? Or even on the flip side, what I'm thinking specifically about Res Life, because you use that as an example, when I was working at Michigan State University, and just for some context about the institution, I mean, I know that you are also a Spartan, um, um, but for your listeners, some context about Michigan State that I think is really important and understanding the state of whatever university or in the communities of whatever university and the feeder schools and feeder neighborhoods and feeder cities of whatever university or college that you might be thinking about is always really important. So Michigan State University is a predominantly white school, as you know, um, about uh, what 65% white um, and with a large international student population and then smaller numbers of domestic populations um, that are might be black or Latinx, et cetera. And, and so what's interesting is that the state of Michigan is so incredibly segregated that there are students who are, even in 2021, who are coming from Northern Michigan, right? The Upper Peninsula, perhaps. They might be coming from rural Michigan, like Bad Axe in the Thumb area, and have never interacted with someone who was not white, have never interacted with someone who was not white and a farmer right, or not white and from a rural community or insert identity. Similarly, we've got students who are coming from spaces like King and Cass and overwhelming majority of their teachers are black, for example, or overwhelming majority of the, the students at their school are black, right? And so both populations, and I, I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm talking about race in a super binary way, um, but I, I'm doing that just to illustrate this example. So both populations are coming to Michigan State University and what are they doing? They're moving into West Circle, and they have this RA who is helping them make meaning of what will likely be a culture, culture clash, right? Helping them make meaning of what are the generalizations that you're bringing into this space that are impacting how you're interacting with or thinking about or making assumptions about your roommate, about the person down the hall, right? Helping them make meaning of the really problematic things that they might be saying or doing and helping them learn and reverse that. And so it's, I think it's all of those things that lead to diverse and multicultural communities, right? That, that literal meaning making, reflection, and opportunities for learning that, that are connected to lived experiences, not necessarily the content in question. Right? It's really rooted in this is, this is my lived experience and what I would like to do is help us all make meaning and bring our lived experiences um, into this space. And so this also obviously is where dialogue and dialogue pedagogy also helps with this process. But RAs or um, uh, you know, student organization advisors or anything like that, when they, when they are trained well, when they're doing their job well, then it is root, rooted in that identity development process, which allows for the meaning making that leads to um, sustainable multicultural communities, right? Otherwise, what happens is um, you get into this kind of um, like punishment and sanctioning process, 
which is, you know, always has to be a part of, of the process, especially when students are doing things that are harmful or against the rules or against the law or what have you. But even in the sanctioning, there's an aspect of learning, there's an aspect for reflection, and, and there's an aspect for an applied experience as opposed to ju like just know that was wrong. Right. Um, and so that way, when when students leave the institution, Michigan State or any other institution, they're able to move about the world in a way that allows them to think more deeply and to reflect not just about others, but reflect more deeply about uh, uh, on themselves and who they are as a part of their their ongoing growing and their ongoing kind of adulting experience as a part of that process. I'm not going to hold it against you that you didn't say Renaissance when you said Cass and King, but it's. <laughs> It's cool, you know. Okay, and this, Renaissance. And this, Renaissance. Is Renaissance Burgundy? Oh, no, you didn't. Yes, yes, it is. Burgundy okay. and white, but. Listen, I'm from Lansing. That's fine. I've had to learn y'all schools since I was still here. <laughs> my B, my B. Sorry, Renaissance. <laughs> so I want to go back to something you mentioned regarding, you know, thinking more introspectively about you know myself and the way that I present myself my own positionality mm. after um, experiencing these diverse spaces how do we get students to to adopt that growth mindset especially when they have not been exposed to diversity I, I love that you flipped it right because coming from Detroit I wasn't even used to people from smaller urban areas so like mm -hmm. people from mm -hmm. Flint were completely different to me or people from Pontiac mm -hmm. I'm like who are y'all? Why do y'all dress like this? It was it was just like mind shift. And then to see so many white people, I was just like in awe. Like, where did you it's all overwhelming. come from? Overwhelming, yeah. So how do we get students to, to adopt that growth mindset? That's a really good question. I don't know that I think it's um I I, I don't know that I think it's a it's an easy one answer, depending on the person, especially because. Uh, you know, I think some of us have the capacity to be um, more resilient, I suppose, a little bit more tenacious, a little bit more, um, what, amiable, I guess, uh, as opposed to rigid. And some of us are just that, really rigid. And, and, and it takes a little bit longer to kind of chisel through the external craft, so to speak. And so I think with that in mind, it, the first thing that I'm thinking about how to help students adopt that growth mindset is to literally meet them where they are, right? Which again, I think is it for, for people, even people in my field who are really committed to diversity, equity, inclusion, and equity in particular, they have sometimes a really difficult time meeting people where they are, meeting students where they are, because we expect them to know better by now. And the truth is they don't, baby, they don't know better. <laughs> and, and and that has like at some point that I hate to say it this way, but some at some point that has to be okay, because everybody needs and deserves an entry point. Everybody gets to start somewhere, so why not start wherever they are and help them move just even one step along the way, right? Like there's this um, action continuum that I that I use sometimes in some of the diversity trainings that I do, uh, especially with student org leaders. And it and it um, it kind of starts on the far left side is essentially um, I can't remember the exact language at this moment, but on the far left side is something along the lines of. Um, actively participating and perpetuating oppressive situations. And on the far right side is 
the polar opposite of that, right? Like actively dismantling, fighting against, et cetera. And then in between, it's just like one step, one step, one step, one step, one step. And so you go from like actively perpetuating oppression to recognizing that you're actively uh, perpetuating oppression. And then you might move from there to actively uh, being more reflective, right? Like all of these really, really, really small steps, as opposed to a lot of times we expect that people, not only do we expect them to know better, we expect, we tell them like, you know, racism is bad, right? And then we expect them to behave in ways that they understand that and they understand how to behave differently the very next day. Instead of like, I mean, you have kids, right? So you, you know that you had to go from crawling to walking not even crawling, you went from like scooting on the belly a little bit, right? To a little bit of arm motion, to a little bit of crawling, to kind of a raggedy walk, right? Like all of that process. And so for me, when you're helping students adapt a growth mindset, you're recognizing that their learning process, especially for something that is new and that is, is um, wrapped in fear, has to be similar. It has to start with a little bit of scooting and then a little bit of crawling, as opposed to expecting them to show up and be running the next day. I think the other thing is that we can't assume um, that they, what, that they don't know. It, it, we, yeah, we have to assume, we have to assume that they don't know, right? And engage as a social justice edu educator, as opposed to a shamer or a discipliner. Um, and so that is to say, that uh, similar to the point that I just met, made is that even when we're talking about things like don't assume that students know. Uh, now, sometimes we need to assume that they do know and that they can teach us better than we can even teach them, right? Like there, there is a both and process here. But in theory, if I'm working with a student who is coming from, you know, it, those examples that I sh shared earlier, a student who's never experienced or interacted with someone who speaks a different language than them, have never experienced or interacted with someone who's from a different country than them, and they've been watching TV that's, in, that's teaching them really harmful messages and really harmful generalizations about that particular country and about that particular group of people who speak a different language than them, then I have to assume that that is what they think is correct and I have to help them think differently about that, right? And, and that is an education process. That is not a shaming process. The other thing that I think is really important um, that I like to do a lot, especially in my classroom spaces, is this social construction thesis. And, and for me, what I like about the idea uh, around social construction, which, which is, is really kind of the, the meaning, right? The, the, the notion, so to speak, placed on an object or whatever in society that we have all decided and agreed, right? And adapted um, and placed value on uh, as socially as a community, things like gender or race, right? Or social constructs. And, and so as a part of that process, I like to introduce students to this idea of a social construct, because when people, students in particular, find out that much of what they know to be true, air quotes, or where they place value or even the language that we use, when they figure out that that is a part of a socially constructed reality, that is typically derived, right, in service of power structures, then once they figure that out, then that means that we actually get to open up new possibilities of constructing something different. Like if how we got here was constructed in the first place, you're telling me that I can construct something different? So, so what I've been taught to believe, I don't actually have to believe. What I've been taught to be true, it doesn't actually have to be true. Is that like, that's what the social construction thesis means for me. And so when I talk about that, I think that also helps to cultivate a growth mindset because now students are recognizing that 
all of the things that they place so much value in were actually constructed in a social format that they can reimagine, reconstruct, disrupt, and deconstruct in a way that actually serves all of us instead of the power structures at play. I love that you brought up power. That's like the, the word that's been playing in my head once you start mentioning like giving the ability to students to influence. Mm -hmm. And so that, that moment of empowerment really, I think transitions me into the next question around thinking about students as like primary stakeholders here. Like you mm -hmm. described them as the content earlier. How do student affairs or student affair professionals go about engaging students in various processes, right? Understanding that the outcomes of whatever it is that you all do is going to impact the student. So how do we make sure student voice is centered there? Mm -hmm. I think that depends on what kind of student affairs practitioner or a student affairs administrator that you are. And this is where my social work comes into play. Uh, because I don't believe that any decision made for us without us, right, makes sense. Uh, which is, you know, that's not, that's not like a Jasmine Lee quote. I read that someplace. Um, I can't remember where I read it, but it was something along the lines of like anything that's, that, that is about us without us is not for us. Right. And so similarly, when I'm thinking about work with students, it's that same idea. And so for me and, and some of the spaces where I think I've gotten some of my um, best practice, some of my best leadership, some of my best mentorship, some of my best supervision, it's been in spaces where I've been able to watch student affairs practitioners and student affairs administrators um, literally in, work with students as partners in our work, as opposed to as just the beneficiaries or recipients of our work or consumers. That's one of the things I hear often, like they're consumers. And I hate that so much because that's not what this is. right? We, this is a co-created reality um, and that we're working on together. And so being able to work with students as partners as a part of that process is really important. And so what does that look like, at least for me, how I see it? That means that I'm thinking of myself as a translator. I'm thinking of myself as an advocate. I'm thinking of myself as a, as a gatekeeper. And not in the way that I keep the gate closed, but in the way that I'm seeking to open as much access as possible, um, helping them to understand the loopholes and policies and processes and procedures, helping them to understand the one person you know, in the financial aid office, shout out to Ann Graves at Michigan State prior to her retirement, who was always going to find more money, right? Like that is that is a gatekeeping process that is rooted in um, access creation as opposed to um, closing multiple doors. And so I think those are some of the ways that you engage students in these processes is making sure that they're actually at the table when you're making decisions. So one really good example that I can give to you, uh, again, from my time at a previous institution, we were thinking about how to retain Black students uh, at the university, and in particular, not just retain them from their first year into their second year, right, like that first year persistence, but we were also really looking up at how to retain them and keep them to keep them persisting through specific levels of math and specific levels of writing. And we were looking really specifically at increasing graduation rates, where, which at the time were 65% in comparison to 86% of their white peers. Um, and, and, and as a part of that process, a, a group of black, black faculty and staff, we started meeting voluntarily and talking about like, these are the things we need to do. These are the things research says. Da, 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 da. And then at some point, I, I can't remember how it happened, but we all just said, wait a minute. Why are we making all of these decisions for students without asking them? 
And so what we actually did was started inviting them to our meetings with us, asking them, what is keeping you, right, from returning to that math class? What's stopping you from going to tutoring? All of these things come to find out it wasn't about the math and it wasn't about the tutoring. It was about the tutorer, right? It was actually about the spaces that didn't feel welcoming, didn't feel like they could, they could adequately seek help without being judged or overlooked or ignored, that they didn't feel comfortable going to their faculty member to ask for help. Like all of these other things that actually had nothing to do with the content in question, but was, which, but was absolutely negatively impacting their ability to persist and their ability to graduate on time, if at all, right? Going back to my, the whole reason I be, uh, wanted to, to go into social work in the first place, right? So for me at this moment, it was so full circle. And so as a result of the conversations that we were having with students, we developed a whole slew of what we were calling strategic black student outreach programming initiatives uh, from um, having food together on the first Friday of every month to like really specific training for every single tutor and every single supplemental instructor, right? And that was only because we were able to work with students as partners and engage them as not, not yeah, engage them as partners as a part of this process and solution building um, in order to get to the outcomes that we wanted, right? As opposed to, I think what often happens, which is why I think you asked this question, is that again, we tend to think that we know everything and the research says everything. So we just gonna make these decisions based on the research instead of really giving students the opportunity to see and experience and offer their own thoughts and insights because also students are experts in their own selves, right? They're experts in their lived experience, even though, even if they don't necessarily have the language at the time to describe the things that we want them to describe. When I was in high school, I couldn't name racism, but I could definitely name that black people stood in certain spots and we were not welcome in other spots, even in the early 2000s, right? Like at the time I didn't know what that was, but I definitely saw it and felt it and could describe it. And so um, giving students the access to the table and, 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 and um, access to be able to share their stories and tell us what they need. I think the other piece too is when we're thinking about engaging students in processes, again, for, for me in particular, I think about my work as amplifying students' needs right? Translating their concerns into language and inst the institution cares about, like graduation rates, retention, persistence numbers, like I just described. Because when, but without rooting some of those things in those really abysmal numbers, the university just continued to like overlook it. Like it was nothing, right? Until we said, well, if you, if you continue to graduate Black students at 65% uh, annually, like these are, this is the way that's gonna impact your return on investment. This is the way that it's gonna impact donor base, stronger alumni base or lack thereof, right? Like this, this is the impact that the university will have. So being able to translate their concerns into language that the institution cares about is also I think a part of the process of engaging students. And, and similarly, and conversely, translating the institution for students right? Helping them understand the policies and procedures, helping them understand who are the key players. At my current institution, for example, we have a Chick-fil-A on campus. And as I'm sure many of your listeners know, uh, Chick-fil-A is widely known to have uh, great waffle fries and to be really anti-LGBTQ um, plus. And, uh, you know, there, there's consistent reporting around them um, uh, so sending funding to um, 
really harmful uh, organizations that are anti-queer and all this kind of stuff. And so there's, there is a group of students on our campus who are like, we don't need Chick-fil-A here anymore. This doesn't align with our values, all this kind of stuff. And so they were having this kind of roundabout circle conversation um, with each other and getting mad and trying to protest <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. And the reason I laugh is because in all in all of the, the protests that they were having and all of the conversations they had, no administrator said to them, actually the contract uh, is, is written and signed six years in advance. So there's literally nothing we can do until three years from now. But there is, there is a dining committee that allow students to serve on this committee who every time a contract is up gets to decide whether or not the contract will renew or will be dissolved and whether or not we will continue with that same company or move to a different vendor right nobody said that to them so they're protesting wasting their time energy and resources for something that literally cannot change at least for three years given given our, our current contract and so translating then for students engaging them in the process is letting them know like actually as soon as the committee is accepting more students i'm going to make sure that you know about it so that you can be on it as soon as the contract is up i'm going to make sure that you know about it so that you can protest that day right as soon as uh, you have questions about contract and money, you need to talk to this person because this person is the vice president of, of finances or insert fancy title. And this person is over that particular building. And this person is over all of the dining contracts on our campus, right? That institutional navigation piece is also really important, especially for students who are interested in pursuing um, social justice or advocacy or um, equitable outcomes for their experiences on campuses in ways that they don't feel like are happening. But when we don't translate to students how the university works, then we end up um, allowing them to kind of run themselves into the ground unfairly. And so that so that is also why I think it's incredibly important, which is not the question that you asked, but I think the importance of your question, that is why it's important to engage students in the process. You're speaking to my macro practitioner heart, right? Like I often use the community engagement continuum in presentations that I give. And I tell folks like, you know, at the far end of the continuum, the far right side, it's, it's extremely aspirational, but we want to share power with whatever, whoever our stakeholders are. And in the, the example that you prescribed, knowledge is power in this case, right? Like being able to share the information like, hey, your protest is actually futile right now. Like some of you won't even be on campus by the time this contract is up but you can position yourself for future advocacy mm -hmm. by doing this. Like that, that could have sh shaved off so much time, like mm -hmm. lost time. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. <laughs> I wish, I wish more of us would understand that, right? Like we can get upset. You want to react, you want to do things, you want to see change, but there's also a process to navigate with that. Mm-hmm. And not all processes are fair. Not all process processes should be. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that that part is also true. Uh, and also, while they're in place, like while we're actively trying to dismantle them, we should also be trying to navigate or not navigate, but trying to figure out what are the loopholes that play, mm -hmm. right? And communicating and articulating and translating for students to make sure that they also understand 
how to navigate the space, which I think is, again, going back to something I mentioned earlier about um, when students leave the university, these are the practices that matter, right? When they are working at a, a job, when they're leading a family, when they're the PTA president, insert whatever reality once they leave the university, if they understand institutional navigation, if they understand that it's important for me to know where the power lies, um, if they understand that it's important for me to know that I have to have multiple people talking at multiple levels, right, about this thing, so that even when I do leave, it still matters to someone else who is still here, right, like helping them understand those things, those are the things that actually lead to equitable outcomes in, um, uh, quote, the real world, right, and, and lived and working experiences outside of the university because we're getting them in the practice of those skills, those ways of being, those dispositions that actually cultivate a deeper understanding, that cultivate an ability to speak truth to power with the knowledge of the institution because you've done your research, right? Because someone is, is uh, opening up and creating access for you to be at the table and all of these things, that is a part of the, the process. And so you, you gave an example where I think things were, quote unquote, a little bit more straightforward. And so I want to talk about when there are more barriers involved. And so how do we, I guess the way I want to frame this is how do we manage conflict when the school has to go in a different direction, right? Like you, you've actually invited students to take part of the process, you've received input, but the decision is ultimately opposite of what students desire. And so I'm curious as to how we go about maintaining the relationship, understanding like we had to go in a different direction. Mm -hmm. so, so what I was describing earlier about working with students as partners in, in these processes and these decisions, et cetera, I think gives you the space that even when you have to go in a different direction, they've already been a part of the conversation so long that they kind of know why. And so I think how you manage conflict in those moments is transparency, is honesty, is vulnerability, it, you know, being able to say just this is the money that we have right now. And so we, we, we don't have the capacity to do those things, but here are some other things that we're, we are able to or are willing to do, right? So it's not just about the transparency and the honesty, it's also about being willing to at least still come to the table with some options, with some concessions, um, so to speak. I think a lot of times that universities, which is, this is an answer, this part of the answer, I don't, I, I haven't even figured out just yet, and, uh, it, and it sometimes can be a little bit of a thorn in my side, is that universities are so um, often worried about branding and especially, especially public institutions are so committed to and rooted in free speech, which I recognize is a, is a right of all individuals. But as a part of that process, they can get into a really unhealthy territory of both sidisms. Um, you know, there's good people on both sides, as our former president once said, which was nonsense at the time for the context in question. And so <laughs> I think in, in those moments, more specifically, 
in those moments, I, I think is where there's actual conflict, right? Like, so what I was describing before, where it's like, you're engaging them in the process, you're talking them, talking with them as you go along, and they're understanding the whys and the what's and the, the challenges, et cetera. So then when you have to go in a different direction, they already kind of have a sense, like they kind of saw that coming because you've been sharing information with them along the way. Um, but I think when it comes to like campus crisis, like, um, who was it, Milo Yiannopoulos being invited to all those universities at that, that, that mm -hmm. whatever year that was, those like two years um, uh, of his like wild fame, I guess. And students kind of saying, he literally does not align with the values of our institution. Why are you allowing them here? Right. And the university saying, well, it's free speech. And it's like, yeah, but the things that he's saying is harmful. The things that he's saying is violent. The thing that he's saying is actually encouraging people in the audience to be violent and harmful toward me physically. This is threatening. This is et cetera. This is psychologically unsafe. Right. All of these things that students are saying, community members more broadly even are saying in universities still feeling feeling like they have to. Um, still aligned with creating space and opportunity for this perspective, even though it might be dangerous or harmful or what have you, as, as students at least, or some community members are perceiving. And I honestly think that in those moments, that is what is most difficult. That is where conflict um, is a little bit more difficult to manage. Now, I, I do think that in those moments, one of the things that can help happen, especially for student affairs practitioners in particular, we tend to have the relationships necessary with students differently than um, sometimes like, you know, associate provosts or academic deans. They don't typically have relationships with students in the same ways, right? Whereas a vice president of student affairs likely still has really close relationships with students. And so as a part of that process, in those moments of crisis, we on the student affairs side actually have the ability to call students in to, to um, to care for their feelings and emotions and needs, and to also create opportunities and avenues for them to express their, their, their feelings and needs, to encourage them to engage in activism for, for when he might come on campus, or encourage them to plan a different event that garners everybody's attention so that they don't even wanna go to his stupid talk. You know, I shouldn't say that it was stupid, to his talk. <laughs> Um, and, and things like that. And so I think that is the beauty of having a well-positioned and student affairs division and a well-trained set of student affairs staff, because I think that we can really support the university in managing conflict in those moments because so much of our work is rooted in relationship. But, I, but I, so what I want to say as a part of that is that if relationships do not exist, you cannot manage the conflict. That is the truth. I'll tell you an example from my current institution. Um, my president, Freeman Rabowski, he's a well-renowned well renowned Black man. Uh, he, he is known as like the president's president, <laughs> the university's president president. Uh, he is the man. He's charismatic. He's friendly. He's engaging. He's knowledgeable, right? All of these great qualities. But what is phenomenal about this man that I've noticed over the past couple of years since I've been at UMBC is actually when students, <laughs> when students are mad at him and when students want to protest him, I mean, when the students walked into his office and tried to occupy it, he did not run away. He did not shut them down. He did not call the police. He sat there and he invited them in and listened, right? That is actually how you manage conflict. 
not the things that universities actually do. Like when you think about the, 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 um, the physical building at the University of Michigan where the president, the president's offices, the, all of the, like the admin building, it is literally built so that students can't protest there. <laughs> Right? Like, as opposed to saying, we are helping you cultivate the skills to be activists, to advocate for your needs, to speak truth to power. And even when I'm wrong, I'm going to sit here, I'm going to listen, I'm going to be willing to be called in, I'm going to be willing to be thoughtful. I don't know what decisions I can make just yet, but you need to know that I'm listening and that your thoughts and feelings are valid. Most universities don't even give students that much. And when you can't even give students that much, there's no way to manage a crisis. Goals. I would love to see like all institutions, like their leadership be prepared for that, right? Like just to, to sit and actually listen, like to hear individuals truth, to be responsive. When you mentioned even the design of U of M's building, like the, the actual architecture, the infrastructure being built in a way where students can't even do that. Like, even the fact that you know that, right, it, it just becomes clear where priorities are mm -hmm. and where people feel the most comfort, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, I want to maintain this feeling of comfort. I'm not going to jump into the fragility conversation today because I'm not in the mood. But, <laughs> but just being mindful that when you create barriers, both literal and physical, it's felt. Mm -hmm. And people, people know this. Mm-hmm. And it is it is sustained, right? So um, university, the University of Michigan is not the only university that has buildings that are built in that way. I honestly think there's some there. I feel like there's some aspects at the at Michigan State University that are similar, um, but I can't remember. So so I don't want to say that with as much confidence. But there are several universities across the country that are that have buildings where the president exists that are built in the same way. And part of that is because of all the protests that happened in the '60s, right? Especially when students of color were demanding for ethnic studies programs, we're demanding for um, cultural centers on campus, we're demanding for all of these things, right? The universities were in fear, were afraid. And so then they built up these barriers to keep students out, right? And now here we are in, in 2021, we're living kind of a different existence and a different reality. And I think a lot of universities are trying to create space where they can have close relationships with students, where they can engage vulnerably, where they can um, listen authentically and deeply. But at this point, because the policies, the processes, the infrastructure, right, the spaces and the places and the environments have been so deeply ingrained to keep people out, you, you almost have to like start there. You got to dig it all out before you can even try to be uh, the type of president that Freeman is, right? And, and I think too, it's, um, or on the other hand, if you're not digging it all out, who is it? Um, Celeste, I can't recall her last name, but if you're not digging it all out, perhaps you're burning it all down, right? Because from the ashes, you can rebuild something new is what she says. And so I think it, so, the, so not only is it felt, it is sustained until you actively disrupt it. You've covered the question that I, that I wanted to wrap up with around the role that you've played in advocating for, for DEI on our college campuses, clearly. Like, I, I don't want you to have to repeat that. What I do want to hear, though, is how do we make these learning sustainable, right? Understanding that one day students will leave the, the quote-unquote safety net of a campus mm -hmm. and be positioned to go have difficult conversations or to dismantle systems of inequity 
how do we make sure that the moment they, they leave, whether that's through graduation or otherwise, that they're prepared for, I don't, I don't want to say the real world, but the world outside of the ivory. Yeah, I wish I could remember this quote by, and I guess the quote and the person, <laughs> <laughs> but it was something along the lines of, um, if I was perfect at meditating, I wouldn't have to practice. And I practice meditating for three hours every single day or something, it's something along those lines. And it's really the idea, um, what, 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 what he was getting at, is really this idea that anything that we want to be good at, anything that we want to be committed to, has to be a daily practice, right? You don't meditate once and reap all the benefits. It has to be a daily practice. You don't work out once and reap all the benefits. It has to be a daily practice. Jasmine, you don't work out once and reap all the benefits. It has to be a daily practice, right? Like it, it has to be a daily practice. And so for me, what makes these learnings sustainable is helping students commit to the practice of engaging in critical self-reflection on a daily basis, to commit to the practice of speaking truth to power, even when it doesn't feel good, when it feels uncomfortable, when they're shaking in their boots, right? to commit to the practice of interrogating the whys and the power dynamics and the power structures and all those kinds of things, to commit to the practice of radical love for all humanity. That, that is a daily practice that requires us to be cognizant and conscious and present at every moment within every single interaction that we have. And I mean, as someone who also, you know, as you mentioned earlier, enjoys and understands dialogue, you should hear that all of the things that I'm talking about right now are absolutely rooted in the practice of dialogue. And so for me, that's actually how it becomes sustainable. It's creating environments and opportunities for people to engage across difference in a way that cultivates a practice and a set of practices that move with them even when they leave the institution and can be adapted and or modified as needed depending on the context they're in. Because you're gonna need to know how to speak truth to power if you go to church, right? or if you are in a family that has really jacked up power dynamics, or if you're at a job and the, the boss is racist or classist or insert thing, right? Like you're gonna need to have practiced how to call someone in. You're gonna need to have practiced how to care for yourself and engage in radical self-care. You're gonna have to need, you're gonna need to have practiced how to say no and set really clear boundaries. Right? Because when it's time to when it's time to do the thing, if you haven't already practiced doing it, you won't be able to do it. It's gonna be so hard. Eric Thomas says that when, when it's when it's time to be ready, it's too late to get ready. So you gotta stay ready, right? And so it's that same idea. So when you're practicing every single day, that's how you stay ready. And so for me, that's what that's really what makes it sustainable. And I think the other piece that I wanted to name too is 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 really about this, this practice of, of radical love, this practice of radical love. Um, I think for me, especially for social justice work, yeah, especially for social justice work and even for, for, for yeah, all aspects, radical love without it, 
we cannot actually get to the reality that we want. And so that is also the piece that for me makes the learning sustainable, helping students to understand that they have to radically love, radically love humanity, that they have to radically love one another. That does not negate, negate that does not negate anger, right? That does not necessarily negate righteous um, anger as it were, right? All of these things, but to, to love justice more than you hate, right? To love um, humans and humanity and dignity more than you hate all of these other things or hate this or hate that or whatever, being able to do that. It, it does not discount these things and it doesn't ask you to, to remain silent even in the face of injustice. It's just asking, like I said, that we love justice more than we hate oppression or that we love humanity more than we hate discrimination or that we're pursuing revolution and social justice in the name of love for humanity as opposed to retaliation or hatred. And even some of the conversations that I hear among my colleagues who are rooted in and committed to diversity, equity and inclusion, who are committed to social justice, it still comes, it still begins to get into the space of, I'm doing this because I hate XXX. And even if we don't say those things, how we behave, the things that the, 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 the ways that we engage, even in social justice work can still be rooted in a hatred that is actually not revolutionary. So, so I'm gonna read this quote by Grace Lee, Grace Lee Boggs. And she says, people who are full of hate and anger against their oppressors or who only see us versus them can make a rebellion, but not a revolution. She says the oppressed internalize the values of the oppressor. Therefore, any group that achieves power, no matter how oppressed, is not going to act differently from their oppressors as long as they have not confronted the values that they have internalized and consciously adopted different values, right? And so if I'm actively trying to um, reflect and deconstruct these values that I've internalized so that I can consciously adopt different values, if, I, if I'm actually just engaging with the people who hate me in the same ways that they hate me and I'm per, per, perpetuating that same hate, that actually won't get us anywhere. It'll get us to a rebellion, but not a revolution, right? And a rebellion doesn't lead to a different uh, way of being. It doesn't lead to a different reality for all of us. Only the revolution can do that. And that has to be rooted in radical love, deep radical love. And so that is how it is also for me, for me, not may perhaps not for everyone, but for me, that's how the learnings are sustainable, is helping students cultivate a deep radical love for each other, for humanity, for all mankind, so that even when I see that you are a whack person doing awful things, full of hatred, that I can look past some of those things and see in the middle of all of that, that you are still a human, that you still deserve dignity, that your humanity is still worthy and that you still get to have an entry point and that you still can, you still have the capacity to grow as soon, as long as you're living and breathing, you still have the capacity to grow. Then that, that allows me to, to think of you and to interact with you differently. Now that doesn't mean that you always have the capacity or the patience to do that, right? As an educator, I feel like I've cultivated that over time. That is not the expectation that I have for everyone, but that is, that is one of the ways that I think you maintain this, this sustainability is a deep radical love for one another. I wanted to just say period poo, like every time you pause a little bit, well, <laughs> you, you got it, right? Like you, you, you laid it out. Like, I don't have a, I don't have a follow-up. 
Well, thank you. So Dr. Lee, how do people keep up with you, with your work, what's going on at the university? And I know, I know you have some entrepreneurial endeavors as well. How do people reach out to you? Yeah, such a good question. Thank you for shouting out my entrepreneurial efforts. <laughs> um, so, yes, so people can find me um, a couple of places, www.drjaslee.com. That's drjaslee.com. And at that space is where you'll find more of my off-campus <laughs> entrepreneurial endeavors, as you mentioned. So I've actually been doing diversity training, consulting, coaching, and all of that stuff. Um, really for about, uh, what, about a decade at this point. I mean, literally, um, once I finished up my master's program, I started doing diversity education for nonprofits, uh, faith-based communities, and obviously universities and educational institutions as well. And so what that has looked like over the past several years has, has ranged. And so I've done keynote speaking, et cetera. I've done year-long training sessions for national organizations. I've done one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching and one-on-one -on -one consulting um, for organizations and or individuals like managers, leaders of organizations and things like that. I've also done um, like year-long anti-racism teaching practices for charter schools here in Baltimore, uh, working with full staff teams and things like that. I'm also an IDI um, qualified administrator and so leading organizations through the uh, intercultural development inventory is also a part of my work. And so that is an aspect of the work that I do and that I'm really passionate about that I love doing. And so you can, you all can find more about that on my website. Again, that's www.drjazzlee.com. Um, on the other hand, you know, for, for Alyssa, a little less of the professional me and more on the giggles, um, the shits and giggles, so to say, side, <laughs> you can find me on the socials, um, on Twitter or on Instagram under Dr. Jazzly. I remember a, a, one of your episodes, um, more recent episodes, I can't remember who it was, but he said, don't find me on Facebook. Similarly, <laughs> don't find me on Facebook. Um, but Twitter and Instagram um, uh, is typically where I welcome, welcome friends. Um, but again, in those spaces, I'm more of a, a whole human being, whereas um, at, on my website, you'll learn a little bit more specifically about the work that I do. Shout out to Dr. Frederick Ingram and his anti-Facebook message. Listen, don't find me on Facebook. <laughs> well, Dr. Lee, I appreciate you hopping on the pod. I think even reflecting on my own time in student affairs a brief one albeit it was there were so many opportunities for more dialogue for more advancement of equity and I think part of it was timing mm. and I don't think there was just the right infrastructure in place for for having that dialogue but I see now with leaders like yourself and the constructs are there the theory is beyond there like we're, we're at a, uh, a place of practice and just I'm excited to see what happens now like we, we have the knowledge, we, we don't have a choice, like let's do what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So one real quick thing I realized, I didn't actually say what my social media handles were. They're the same, Dr. <laughs> Jasley, at Dr. Jasley. All right, Dr. Lee, you take care of yourself and I'm sure we'll cross paths at some point. Yeah, and thanks for the invitation, I enjoyed it. This was great. I can't wait till it comes out. As always, want to give um, our thanks to our guests. So thank you, Jasmine, for joining us. Um, I know I harassed you early on, 
when I was thinking about you know putting the podcast together that's why you hear the reference in there to 2021 gives you a sense of just how old this is but I know I started harassing you well before that but but glad you were able to hop on I, I knew you would bring a, a unique perspective to higher education to student affairs and how all of those pieces come together so shout out to you also as always shout out to the listeners um i know i gave a shout out to my my listeners in germany a few episodes ago i did see i have listeners in australia shout out to you all um i've never been but if you are trying to fly your boy out i would not mind just know uh, it's a family affair so you you send me you got to send my kids too a few very quick updates on equity matters activities we are six months away from the end my friend we are wrapping up our last few episodes it's bittersweet but you all will survive and so will i i do have intentions on continuing the podcast in a different format uh going forward i've been joking around with this notion of creating a sketch show or creating a, a late night uh show dedicated to equity i was watching z-way the other day i was like this is kind of cool now i don't think i would interview people in the same manner but i I do think there's a lot to gain from that particular format so just be on the lookout for that we're going to have a silent send-off i'm not going to make a lot of noise about it also you can sign up for our trainings through the cummings graduate institutes we have two live right now one on implicit bias and one on community engagement we are putting the finishing touches on our unmasking white supremacy and racism in mental health that should be done sometime early july it's a two-parter really looking forward to that training as well equity matters social justice academy is coming back in the fall i gotta slow things down for a little bit i'm trying to actually um be present for parental leave i had an opportunity to do some work that i thought was actually really really exciting and I had a few early conversations and I, I was booked and ready to go. But I, I checked in with myself. I checked in with my wife and I just felt like I wasn't as present as I wanted to be because I'm still checking emails on a regular basis. I'm still doing all the things that I shouldn't be doing while I've got a newborn baby that I should be spending time with. So I'm pushing everything off until the fall. If you know you want to work with me, follow the links in our bio. Um, check out my website, let you know a little bit about the things that I can do. We also have recently put the finishing touches on a, a an article, no, a chapter for a book. Um, again, around community engagement and power. Shout out to Jody Cunningham, who you may have heard on a few episodes back. I think that was more than a seat at the table where we were talking about community engagement naturally. And... Once I have the details, I'll I'll just add it to the links in the bio. It's just another place for you to get to know me in a different format. The only other thing I care to share today, make sure that you are following us on social media. We we had a really good time. The last uh, podcast series talking about organizers that you should know, giving folks their flowers, Marsha Johnson, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, um, those of the like. Folks that we don't typically get a chance to celebrate as organizers, but we absolutely must. And make sure you're following us there. So that's at Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram, at Equity Matters PC on Twitter. Um, Like us on Facebook. Leave us a review. Share the episode with a friend. Just continue to amplify the message because that's what it's all about. 
and I'm really just excited because I've seen how much we've been able to do in such a short amount of time. I'm excited to see the next phase of this, how we continue to expand the conversation and the dialogue, if you will. And so I've got a baby who's starting to wake up. So it looks like it's time for me to go. Take care of yourselves, folks. And until next time, equity matters.